Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is the last edition of The Andrew Lawton Show of the year. I know it has just flown by, or maybe it's dragged, or maybe it's only dragging because you're listening to this show right now, although I hope that's not the case. In any event, I hope you are enjoying your holiday season, and as I've been talking about this weird twilight week between Christmas and New Year's, where you just have a, a perpetual sugar coma, and you don't know what day or time it is, and you're not shaving, and you don't even know the last time you changed your pants. That's the week we're in right now, so what better time to look back fondly, or perhaps not so fondly, on the year that was and unpack a few of the big news stories of 2023 as we just put them to bed before we head into 2024. And I thought, what better way to do that than by assembling a crack team of True North's uh, journalists and commentators. We have cruelly pulled one back from her maternity leave. Uh, Rachel Emanuel, who is the host of the Alberta Roundup show at True North. Also, Cosman Georgia, who is our senior editor and and Sue Ann Levy, who is the uh, fantastic force of nature in Toronto. Cosman, Sue Ann, Rachel, great to talk to you all. Uh, let's just get the obvious out of the way here, because anyone who's in Canada is looking at Sue Ann's backdrop right now and seething with jealousy. Uh, how's the weather there, Sue Ann? Are you wearing a sweater just on our account? Yes, I wanted to make you feel better. It's actually a okay. coolish day in South Florida. The, the second the, the show ends, she's just like ripping it off and jumping right into the pool there. And all of us are just going to be uh, freezing our heinies off. But uh, it, it's good to talk to all of you. I've given all of our guests here a bit of a homework assignment before doing the show. They were asked to come up with their top story of the year. Now, the parameters were not like the most popular story or not even the most important, just the one that they thought was the most meaningful in the work that they've done. And I just realized as I said that, that I didn't do the, the assignment myself. So I'll come up with my at the end, I guess. But uh, let's start off with you, Cosman, because uh, you tend to cover like anything and everything at True North. Like one day you'll be doing a business story. The other day you'll be doing an immigration story. So uh, what for you stands out from the past year? For sure. When I was uh, thinking about my story, I generally thought about the impact. And I think the largest impact story that we really covered this year was the Million March for Children. I mean, this was a movement that had international attention. I had the opportunity to go to two locations here in British Columbia, here in Abbotsford, but also in Vancouver to see the protests for myself and just the value that True North added compared to the legacy media, which downplayed and minimized much of what was going on. Yeah, that was certainly a, a big one. And, and I would say, I mean, when you talk about going to a couple of them, it was hugely national as well. I mean, this whole parental rights discourse we, we saw in a large way in New Brunswick, but we've also seen these protests and rallies, whatever you want to call them, in I think virtually every single province. I don't know if there was one in PEI, but I, I think there probably was. And what do you take of that? Because this was, I, I don't want to compare it to the Freedom Convoy because it wasn't that scale and the, the context was different. But as far as protests in Canada go, this is one of the most widespread, I'd say, certainly for things that are loosely aligned with the right. No, absolutely. We saw protests in major cities throughout the country, Calgary, Ottawa, Toronto, uh, Edmonton, also out east in, in Halifax. So definitely 
it was it was everywhere and i think that was it was such a moment that brought all kinds of people together a unity that i think we're lacking now with some of the events that are happening on the world stage but also in canada and to me these are the types of stories that i think rally canadians together I, let's talk to you about this one, Sue Ann, because I think you were on my show a, at least a couple of times when, when this was going on. And uh, you had this very strange alliance that took place. You had, you know, some Christian evangelical conservative types. You had a lot of the feminist TERFs, as they're called, uh, you know, people that are very pro-women's rights, but have some issues with uh, some of the transgender ideology. And then you had uh, some Muslims that, you know, ended up uh, in some cases being on different sides of, of people they were on the same side with in the parental rights march a few weeks later when when Israel came up. But but how did you see this from your perspective as someone who's written about uh, this issue and the interplay between women's rights and trans rights and gay rights in the past? Well, I thought it was a, a wonderful movement. And, you know, as a uh, openly gay woman, uh, you know, we don't count in the transgender ideology anymore. They've tried to shift uh, gay women lesbian women's rights aside, using words like queer and uh, transgender ideology. And I think we talked about this, at Andrew. Uh, I don't consider myself queer at all. I am a lesbian woman, and I find queer a very, very um, unfortunate term. And I think, you know, it used to be a derogatory term, and now the far radical, the radical transgendered community and uh, the radical gay people who don't represent the lion's share of LGBT people uh, have adopted this term. And I think that was very, the march was very symbolic of the uh, fight against that. Uh, Rachel, you're forgiven if you didn't follow this one too closely, because I know you were technically off at the time, so you, you had a pass on on reporting it. But but was it breaking through to your world, uh, you know, when you weren't like, you know, immersed in the news for, for your work on a day to day basis? Were you seeing this come through on your channels? Oh, absolutely. This is something a lot of people in my circles were discussing. And I have to say that it was one of those instances where sort of like the Freedom Convoy, you saw all these people banding together and you had this moment of, oh, this is really impactful. There's a lot of other Canadians who feel the same way as me, who are concerned about the same issues as me. And it was almost a relief to know that the pool of people who were concerned about this ideology wasn't as small as the mainstream media made it out to be. And there was just a bit of relief in that sense that I'm not alone in fighting this issue. Yeah, and, I, and I'm wondering, and I, this is a bit of a personal question, so you can take it in whichever direction you want, but but how you as, as a mother view this issue a bit differently now? Because obviously your little one's not at the age where they're going to school, but but I heard from a lot of parents of young kids that, that in just general terms have, have been increasingly unnerved by stories they're reading about what's happening in, in schools and, and how little control a lot of parents feel like they have over that. Well, I think it's completely redefined how we as parents proceed with parenting our children. I think, for example, my mom felt like she had a lot more freedom in the people and the places she was able to leave me as a young child. 
Nowadays, you would just have to be so careful with what is going into your child's mind. That means things like you can't likely access public babysitting services at places like the YMCA. You have to find and vet a private sitter that you know and trust. You probably don't want to put your kid into public school because you don't know what they're being taught. You don't want to leave your kid alone at the bookstore because the bookstores are just full of this gender ideology crap. So certainly being a parent is already very difficult and it is a lot of work. And I would say that just the level of work that is required to protect your child's mind has just increased exponentially because there's so few public spaces that are safe for children right now. I, I mean, I'll ask you, Cosman. I know you're a, a parent as well, and I, I don't know how homogenous politically or ideologically your, your friend group is, but but what are the discussions like among parents you have spoken to about this? Is it just like the the hardened, you know, ideologically political ones that are worried about this, or is it really transcending that? You know, it's it's quite the opposite, actually. I have some family members who are teachers traditionally. Uh, liberal voters, and they've totally changed their position on these issues in the last few years. And they're really coming around on the side of, of parents at large and saying, this is enough. A lot of them do feel stifled within that profession to not be able to speak up just because of the power that these advocacy groups hold over uh, teachers individually, but also just the teaching profession at large. But I just wanted to add as well, just to the testament of True North's reporting, we had people throughout the country, people in Ottawa, Toronto, here in British Columbia and elsewhere, reporting on this from the ground, bringing, bringing you guys live coverage. And it's truly a testament in, in to how important independent media is in Canada when the legacy media just refuses to give the full picture. Yeah, and or in this case, the only coverage was through the lens of, oh, these are extremists and these are radicals, as opposed to, hey, what are these people actually saying? What do they think? And, and we've seen, uh, certainly on the Blaine Higgs thing in New Brunswick, pretty consistent polling that this is an issue that has a, a wide consensus behind it. I mean, parental rights is, uh, in the context of gender ideology in schools, is, is polling at like 75%, which you just don't get on a political issue in Canada. And I mean, I don't even think something as uncontroversial as like, you know, kittens are cute or something would get 75% support if you were to, well, I mean, kittens and dogs are, that's a bit more contentious than uh, gender and parental rights, I think sometimes. But uh, this actually segues nicely into uh, your story, Sue Ann. Uh, so I'll go to you next. What's your big story of 2023? Well, it's it's a sad story. It was the sad uh demise of uh, Richard Bilkstowe, a popular and much-loved Toronto school board principal who took his own life in July um, after he had been, I guess, humiliated, intimidated, um, and just simply thrown under the bus by a diversity, uh, equity, and inclusiveness expert. Uh, who had given several seminars at the Toronto School Board to uh, administrators, principals and the like in 2021. He had been humiliated at one session simply for suggesting, simply for suggesting that uh, the, uh, the, the trainer had said that racism, anti-black racism was worse in Canada than the States this principal, Richard Bilkstow, had had experience in the States and said, no, 
uh, he felt that uh, we had a lot more freedom in Canada. That set the trainer off, probably because she was challenged, and she proceeded to humiliate him and call him a white supremacist and mock him, and nobody stood up for him. This continued a week later at another session, and then he found himself, um, he won an WSIB claim. Um, they said that she had behaved egregiously against him, but he found himself virtually cancelled by the Toronto School Board, by the, um, the leaders, the woke leaders of the Toronto School Board, and not able to get uh, any further contract jobs. Um, he sued the school board. He launched a lawsuit, and just a couple of weeks after he did, he uh, took his own life. It was so tragic. Um, I still have the chills thinking about it. It was, and, and I don't want to take away from the individual loss to uh, Bilkstow's friends and, and family members, which by all accounts was and an is very real. But the episode was so revealing of a broader issue that you've you've covered, which is just the complete and utter deference in uh, the public school world in particular to this DEI industry and this DEI ideology. And I mean, I know you did a story a few weeks back uh, where you looked at freedom of information requests and, and just the sheer money that was being spent on this one individual consultant that had had the run-in with Richard Bilkstow to say nothing of others. So you've got people profiting off of this, but it isn't just a racket. It isn't just a grift when you see people making money off this because there are very real casualties to this, not the least of which are, are the students that are being told a very warped way of, of how to view the world around them. And as in the case of Bilkstow, people who dare to push back against this or, or question it. Yeah, it, it was just absolutely tragic but what it did was it revealed this dei industry or as some people have called die die industry um after this tragic suicide but how it has infiltrated not just school boards but city councils this this woman was used kiko ojo johnson uh, thompson excuse me is her name she was used by city councils, by federal government, uh, by many school boards. Um, we're still trying to get, um, I guess, invoice information on how much she cost other school boards. But you could replicate her services by probably six or seven. There are probably several others out there doing the same thing. And it has become fashionable to provide these sessions where you denounce white people, not just male white people, but female white people, um, for, you know, assuming that they're, as a critical race theory says, they're oppressors and black people are oppressed. And it, it's just led to so many issues. I mean, uh, Andrew, I can draw parallels between that and what happened yesterday when the three presidents of the Ivy League colleges spoke about uh, or were questioned about anti-Semitism on their campuses, Harvard, MIT, and UPenn. And they're all involved heavily in this DEI industry. And everybody's tracing it back to the beliefs uh, that, uh, that register with DEI, critical race theory, saying that everybody is a white supremacist, uh, Jews, whatever, everyone uh, who is not black. And they even call Asians white adjacent. So it's just a crazy time. 
Yeah, and I mean, obviously your coverage on this has been focused on Ontario. Uh, Rachel, how does this issue appear if it does in the, the so-called conservative heartland of Alberta? Is this still as pervasive in schools there? Well, it's definitely very pervasive here. We recently had the United Conservative Party annual general meeting, and there were motions passed saying we don't want to see this types of initiatives, the diversity, equity, and inclusions. We want that out of university. Now, of course, policies passed at the AGM are non-binding on the party, but that just speaks to how concerned the party membership is about these types of policies in schools and in universities. And even more recently at our um, True North Live, that was our first conference hosted here in Calgary this year in October, someone asked about the Biltso incident and they asked us to relay what had happened there. So it just shows that this was really a national story. It caught the attention of people all over Canada. They Their heart broke for this individual who faced bullying at a school and ultimately ended up taking his own life because of it. And it just shows that it really resonates with people. And I understand why this was so difficult for this principal at this school when he faced this, because, you know, if you don't have a conservative family, if you don't have a conservative support system, you might not have anyone to turn to in these types of issues. And then mm -hmm. you're also starting to question yourself. I experienced something on a much, much, much small, smaller scale when I worked within the mainstream media. And at the time, it wasn't diversity, equity and inclusion that was the problem. But, you know, I was really concerned with the COVID narrative and I was concerned with the breach of our freedoms and rights as Canadian citizens. And I was trying to write articles that were critical of the government. And I face so much censorship within work. And you start to feel like, is there something wrong with me? And I'm the only one that feels this way. You feel a little bit like you're going crazy. And when I ultimately made the decision to not only leave my position within the mainstream media, but also to then write a column about what had happened, that was very difficult for me. I was extremely anxious about what would happen and about losing, in some sense, my colleagues and my workplace community. And while those things did happen, I was very relieved to then find a new community of like-minded conservatives and independent thinkers. But it was, a, it was a hard experience for me. And I was really only able to do it because I already had a network of like-minded family and friends that really supported me in that decision. Yeah, and you saying that, I mean, you're a bit outnumbered here, Cosman, because Sue Ann, Rachel, and I are all uh, mainstream media exiles. So uh, you just skipped right to the good guys immediately without having to go through that period earlier on. Although I think Sue Ann withstood it for far longer than than Rachel and I managed to. But I, I mean, what you were just saying there, Rachel, uh, really goes back to what you were talking about on the previous topic, Cosman, which is that you have these issues where it can really distort the sense of reality around you when you're convinced that everyone views it one way because the media puts one narrative forward. But really ordinary people, I think, are viewing this exactly how Rachel and, and Sue Ann have just laid it out, aren't they? Yeah, and I think our leaders in media, government, at school boards, even in corporations today have fully bought in. They've drank the Kool-Aid peddled by these uh, shucksters, like these people selling snake oil uh, the, the idea that you can solve racism in society, one of the negative, unfortunate attributes at, of, of human nature, we can solve this through seminars, through, through a little, little meetings where we, we call white people racist, is ridiculous. It doesn't address the root of the problem. But unfortunately, a small group, an activist class coming out of universities have been able to attach themselves at the upper echelons of organizations, whether it's whether it's in uh, in school boards or in the government or at corporations at the executive level, and convince these people who make decisions that their ideas 
should be taken as a dogma. It should be spread throughout these institutions to the lowest levels and exert influence on people's individual behavior. And I think it's outrageous. We're seeing the consequences unfold across society and something must be done. And the first thing people can do is point it out at every instance it pops up because these people have absolutely no credibility. They, their actions and the resulting consequences of the ideology that they preach like a religion it is disastrous. It tears people apart. It tears families apart. And it, it, it has no value added for a company or a government. Yeah, I think you're you're very very apt in, or you're very accurate in in saying that. And one of the points I I would add on on my own on this is that we often have people try to dismiss these concerns out of hand by saying, "Oh, you're just importing an American story. Critical race theory is not really a thing here. It's it's not." And I, I fear that a lot of people are doing the same thing that was done. I mean, even if you look at the heyday of political correctness in the '90s, where people just sort of shrugged it off, dismissed it, downplayed it, or said, "Oh, this is just some little thing that's happening in corners of academia," and then you blink and it's everywhere, and you you have this DEI narrative that's really embedded in all facets of, of society. And I'll, I'll give you the last word on, on this too, Anne, because I, you know, in my experience, things that start in academia, whether it's elementary, high school, or post-secondary, rarely stay there because it's, you know, in this case, discussing how teachers are supposed to teach. So that obviously filters into how children learn. And then those kids grow up and it becomes really this cycle that no one is really able to deal with at a certain point because that ideology is so embedded in society. Well, the, the big concern is that the kids who are taught these theories or who are preached these theories, because it is kind of like a cult, Cosmin is right, um, they're not doing well in school. They're preaching these theories. They're involved in social, social emotional learning. And these kids are failing. They're illiterate. They can't read. They can't write. They can't spell. They certainly can't add and subtract, multiply and divide. So, so much time has been invested in this and certain, I guess, racial groups get a free pass. They get a free pass from discipline. They're not uh, given suspensions or uh, expelled from school for really bad behavior. And I know in several school boards in Toronto in particular, they have a real violence problem and violence is out of control in schools. So it all one thing leads to another. You have to connect the dots. And this has been the result of these theories. Yeah, very, very well said. Uh, Rachel, you are last, but well, I guess I'm last and uh, maybe I am least. You're second last and not least. What was your top story of 2023? Well, I'm not as generous as Cosman. I didn't necessarily think about the impact when I chose the story. I just thought about the story that I enjoyed covering the most. And that was perhaps obviously the Alberta provincial election for a couple reasons. It's always really nice to get back out into the field and to cover things on the ground. We don't always have the opportunity to do that when there's so much news and so few people covering it. But I really loved being able to go to all of the press conferences and ask my questions. And one of the best parts about this was that typically, as some of my loyal followers know, the Alberta NDP refused to take our media requests. They don't ever answer our questions. But it became a little bit more difficult for them to ignore us when I would show up at their press conferences. So I was able to even and, get and to just the, shout the question, like just shout over them. That did happen a couple times. Yes. <laughs> and they answered. In fairness, it worked. 
it did work. It did work. And then there was an interesting situation where they refused to take questions from other independent media outlets, but they were still taking our questions. So I don't really know what was going on there, but it was great to have at least one independent media outlet represented and to ask questions on behalf of so many conservative Albertans across the province. So I really enjoyed that experience. And I would argue that the impact was also very significant. I think that our province would look very different today if we had an NDP government and certainly very different in a couple of years from now, I think you know, people are really happy with the work that Danielle Smith is doing. And even though the legacy media fought so hard to portray her as really unstable and as someone who couldn't be trusted, there was even a recent McLean's magazine article that's called uh, that said the unsteady reign of Danielle Smith. Well, that just isn't reflected in the current polls. She is one of the most popular premiers in Canada right now, and people are really happy with her leadership. So things are looking positive in Alberta right now. We've had a couple of really strong news stories like the overturning of the plastic span as well as Danielle Smith really pushing back on Ottawa's energy regulation. So certainly going to be another exciting year for us. And I'm looking forward to doing my show consistently again and keeping up with Alberta coverage. Well, that has actually become, it's funny you mentioned that, a bit of a national story because Danielle Smith and Alberta have been very direct and very explicit in, in pushing back against what they see as Ottawa's intrusion in their domain. But this has now started a wave of other provinces doing very similar things. Saskatchewan, most notably, we've got, I mean, New, New Brunswick has started talking about this, even Ontario has. So in that sense, Cosman, we're seeing this federalist turn, I guess you could call it, where uh, provincial rights more broadly, even outside of Alberta, seem to be much more front and center now. No, absolutely. I think there's been a wake-up call in the last year or so, and the issues of Western alienation are beginning to prop up again. I do think it is contributing in large part to uh, Trudeau's declining popularity. I mean, he's divided the country more than any prime minister I can remember, at least uh, in my memory. And it's, it's becoming a time when provinces realize that they can put their differences aside and that there are some things we can get together and say, hey, we can work to, to figure these issues out. And the government has instead taken a top, the federal government rather, has taken a top-down approach where they just feel like they can dictate their desire onto the rest of the country when we have such a, 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 a diverse country in terms of different needs, geographical uh, location and different, different uh, resources. And it's so hard to put a blanket approach over the entirety of Canada while ignoring the specific needs of Albertans, people in Saskatchewan, British Columbians, uh, Quebecers, or people in Atlantic provinces. So it's, it's, it's just a, a turning point I know you don't uh, generally cover Alberta politics, Sue Ann, but but I'm curious what your take is from Ontario on this, because it's been a pretty significant change in Alberta politics in the last year. If you look at the ousting of Jason Kenney, the leadership race, and then Danielle Smith winning re-election. Well, all I want to do is um, ask Rachel if she could send... Uh, send the new leader, Danielle, our way in Ontario, because we have a premier who bills himself as a conservative, but really has governed from the center left, or from the center at least. Um, you know, all the things I, I talked about in education, he hasn't cleaned up education. The plastics ban, I'm laughing because I can't go into even a winner's store. 
I have to carry my purchases out because they've banned all plastic bags and any bags whatsoever. They've used that as an excuse not to provide anything. I mean, you know, it's crazy in Ontario. And I want to say to Ford, be a conservative, act like a conservative, because, uh, you know, I look at Danielle Smith's reign with respect because she is a true conservative. And I mean, law and order is another issue. And, you know, it's hit and miss with with Doug Ford, unfortunately. And and some of the big, big issues have not been addressed at all. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think Rachel, not to speak for you, but I think her answer will be that Alberta is calling and you have to go out there instead of Danielle coming to Ontario. Am I am I right about that, Rachel? Listen, I always say that Kathleen Wynne was the reason that I became interested in politics. All the stores that I liked began closed and they couldn't afford their hydro bills. But Doug Ford is the reason I left Ontario. So unfortunately, you can't have Danielle Smith. And also, I don't know if it's fair for you to be asking. Looks like you spend maybe half the year in Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis doing as bad as some Ontarians that I know. <laughs> Shots fired right there. I will say, though, I asked uh, Danielle Smith uh, at, I believe it was at the UCP AGM, at a press conference after her speech, if she viewed Doug Ford as a conservative ally. And I, I wouldn't say it was a gotcha question, but I was curious how she would handle it for the reasons you just mentioned, Sue Ann. And Doug Ford has always been very buddy-buddy with the federal liberal government. And, and she was unequivocal. She said, yeah, absolutely, 100%. I mean, so oddly, uh, though I would see them, and I would agree with your assessment, Sue Ann, that they're very different. She evidently has a good working relationship with uh, Doug Ford in Ontario. So I don't know, maybe some of her approach will uh, will rub off on him. We can only hope. Uh, we are coming to the end of our time together. I was thinking about what mine would be and I think the big picture for me is kind of interesting of just this realignment of conservative politics but uh, to not give a cop-out answer to point to a specific story I'm going to go with a minor one which just is not the biggest thing in the world but it was one where I as a, a journalist and uh, as True North as an outlet really just dug into a, a local small issue and, and owned it and it was when back in the summer I think it was May my city of London, Ontario had a little story come up where the public library would not allow a speaker to come and give a lecture at an academic freedom conference on free speech and gender. And it was Joanna Williams from the UK. She was going to fly all the way across the Atlantic. She's an academic uncontroversial woman except for the fact that she takes a gender critical view and the library would not let the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship have her there. And what was notable is that a few days later, they did allow this like radical pro Hamas Muslim comedian who had done like on the record talks about how great Hamas was and it was the resistance and they weren't terrorists. He was fine, but not a woman who says biological men cannot be women. So uh, we certainly saw just the manner in which these things can be so completely and utterly distorted. So uh, just as we now turn away 2023 and look to 2024, I want to go around the circle here and ask what you are all most looking forward to covering or what you'd like to cover uh, without having a crystal ball necessarily in the year ahead. Cosman, we'll go to you first. Well, Andrew, as you know, we'll be heading to Davos next month. I think that's the first thing that will be on my plate this year. And uh, I'm looking forward to bringing our viewers coverage of that directly from Davos, some of the issues that I think extend and affect to Canada, but uh, at an international level. And, and I think that will be very valuable. 
Yeah, I, actually, yeah, I that, I forgot. Well, I didn't forget you were coming, but I, I uh, well, I guess I did. No, I didn't forget it. I just didn't think to mention it. That's our crew gets bigger every time. So the first time I went alone, the second time uh, Sean, my producer and videographer, came. The third time you're coming along. So uh, who knows? By next year, it might just be the whole True North team there. But I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do there because I know you've always been very keen at covering a lot of these European politicians that uh, are really putting forward ideas that are internationally relevant but often fly under the radar. Uh, Rachel, what are you looking ahead to in the coming year? I am looking forward to seeing how the Alberta Sovereignty Act being invoked for the first time plays out and covering that. It might just turn into a big legal battle, which probably wouldn't be super interesting in 2024 as those things tend to get quite delayed. But that's what I'm most keen to cover. And I'm also really hoping, just as a quick bonus here, that we see some parental Bill of Rights legislation come forward. I think that would be a really good thing for the province and also just a really good thing for me as a parent. All right. Very good. The personal and what, what is that old uh, feminist axiom from Gloria Steinem? The, the personal is the political. But in your case, I, I guess it is accurate right now. Uh, Sue Ann, last word to you. What are you looking ahead to? Two things. I'm looking forward to parents taking more of an active role in their kids' education and exposing more of the DEI nonsense, shysterism. And I'm looking forward to... Uh, good outcome in the Israeli Hamas war. And I think anti-Semitism has been unmasked mm -hmm. and I'm glad for that. I'm not glad for the anti-Semitism, but I'm glad that it has been unmasked. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not a new problem. So if it exists in our society, it's better to know about it. So uh, very well said, Will. It has been an absolute pleasure working with all of you over the past year. Rachel Emanuel, Cosman Georgia, and Sue Ann Levy. I look forward to what uh, all of you and all of us and the rest of our colleagues do in the year ahead. And with that, let me also say to the lovely viewers and listeners of this show, however you uh, tune in, to say thank you so much for all of your support and contributions, financial and otherwise, through the previous year. It has been an absolute pleasure, and I wish you a very happy new year and look forward to seeing what we come up with in the days ahead as well. So we'll be back next week with more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.